This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk, as I always say. And joining me is Mighty Mighty JT, Jamar Tisby. <laughs> you like that, right? That's dope. It's a dope username. Uh-huh. We're using a new program to record, and he labeled himself Mighty Mighty JT. I'm just Tyler, <laughs> but he's Mighty Mighty. So. Uh, yeah, you know, I had to make it interesting for the folks. What's going on with you, man? I'm doing well, man. I was going to ask you, actually, what you reading right now? Oh, my goodness. Why? Did I post something? <laughs> no, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. I'm going somewhere, Jamar. Come on. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. Um, All right. So I'm reading a couple things. One, I am working on this review of Lecrae's book, Unashamed. And Hmm. so I- It's on the list. I I haven't started it yet. I read it a while back, man. It's a quick read because really this it's good writing. He partnered with um, Jonathan Merritt, I believe. Okay. And uh, they they wrote it. I'm, I'm guessing Merritt helped on, you know, some of the editing and, and, and the writing aspect, but Lecrae, of course, being an artist is, uh, is good in his own right. So it's a quick read, uh, but I'm just still trying to process it, man. He, he, especially toward the end of the book where he talks about his transition into more mainstream hip hop, mm-hmm. man, there's a lot to unpack there. And right. then um, I'm reading this, this uh, other book. I want to say it's called The Blessings of Business, and it's by a guy named Darren Grimm, who's going to be uh, one of my professors at the University of Mississippi as I study history. And he's basically talking about the link between capitalism and Christianity in the 20th century. So he's talking about how things like um, Christianity Today and, and Chick-fil-A and InterVarsity Press, and InterVarsity, how, how these are all, Youth for Christ, all funded and backed by sort of big business investors and and sort of the interplay between that, which can, as you might predict at times, be troublesome. So those are a couple of things on my shelf right now. That's very interesting. Yeah, man. Personally, i um, been reading The King Years by Taylor Branch. Nice. Um, Taylor Branch is the foremost uh, biographer and documenter historian of The King Years. Um, he actually has three larger books, um, the first of which, Parting the Waters, was a Pulitzer Prize winning book, and it's about America during the King years. So it's a trilogy of books that are like 900 pages each. (laughs) So I have Parting the Waters, and so I'm kind of like, ah, and so I started reading it, but haven't really gotten too far in, and the King years is a summation, kind of a Cliff Notes version of all three of those. Nice. So I'm like, well, this is much easier for me to read. And it's much quicker for me to read. So, um, but Branch is incredibly engaging, and his his prose is excellent. And then I am also reading um, a couple of theology books. Um, I won't mention the names of the people, just in case people have problems with these people. No, nah, I'm kidding. Nah. <laughs> no, I mean something by Walter Brueggemann. Um, it's called the Prophetic Imagination. So I'm, I'm curious uh, as to how that will end up. I'm only a couple of chapters in, and then I'm reading uh, Divided by Faith, and this is where I was going. I'm rereading Divided by Faith simply because 
the Pastor Mike Book Club is reading Divided by Faith. Word. So I want to shout out the Pastor Mike Book Club. And if you guys are not part of the private Pastor Mike Facebook group, you need to join us. Look us up, Pastor Mike. Request to join in. And we do a lot of different things. We have a lot of very open conversations. It's a mixed group. Some people have asked me, do I have to be reformed to join? No. Do I have to be African-American to join? No. Um, it's a mixture of people there, uh, different denominations from all across the globe, actually, who have yeah. this continuing commitment to reconciliation according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we do is a book club. And so we have about, I think it's around 80 people going through Divided by Faith. We hop on some Google Hangouts. Um, we talk about it. We share just some pertinent quotes. And it's been a very encouraging thing to watch uh, from afar and near and also be challenged in my perspective. So I, I just really appreciate the Pastor Mike group. They know I just always want to give them a hug. Every yeah. Day I see the post. It's a so, big family, man. It's it's really it cool. Is. And I got to shout you out, man, uh, just publicly to thank you because you do most of the monitoring of the group. And bro, I'm telling you, I learn a lot from the way you sort of graciously interact with people. I don't I don't really like confrontation. I don't think you do either, but you do it well. So uh, I, I appreciate it because it takes, you know, it takes somebody... Um, reminding folks of our purpose and, and and even in some cases of our boundaries in order for it to feel like a safe place for honest discussion. So I appreciate that from you. I appreciate that, man. That's, that's uh, very encouraging to hear. Okay, so a lot of things going on uh, this week that we want to get into. The first of which is last year we posted uh, an episode where you and I, Jamar, talked about the reaction to a year, 365 days from the Mike Brown shooting. Um, in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. And we talked about what we felt had changed. We talked about what we felt had not changed. And we are a couple of days out and, and um, we're a couple of days past actually from the two-year anniversary. So there's a lot to consider. There are a lot of things that, um, a lot of emotions that are brought back to the surface. And I am very interested in hearing your thoughts because you received some very friendly, very gracious, very Christian uh, <laughs> backlash to remembering Mike Brown. If so I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so August 9th, uh, 2014 is when Michael Brown, unarmed African-American teenager in Ferguson, Missouri, was shot and killed by a white police officer. And so we just recently had the two-year anniversary of that. And I simply tweeted out, you know, today's the two-year anniversary of that. I really didn't add any commentary whatsoever. And immediately, and this is first thing in the morning, so it's kind of making me sick to my stomach um, that this is this is happening immediately. But the first responses are, yeah, and he attacked the officer and he, um, you know, he was this villain and this miscreant and all of these things. Um, and I'm... And it was just so interesting to me that even two years later, this incident in particular is so, well, I, I would say it reveals the polarizing that is still um, still in our country today. Like, it seemed like these posts could have happened two years ago and that we hadn't made any progress. Right. Yeah. And I think... It also brings to mind just the unfortunate reality that these issues are still present with us today. And, you know, in thinking about this idea of policing and the tenuous, very strenuous relationship between the police and the community, 
we get another report on top of this two-year anniversary, uh, so to speak, where the Justice Department has some findings from the Baltimore Police Department. Mm. And in a 164-page report, what they find is that the Baltimore Police Department has engaged in, in what one article calls unconstitutional practices that led to disproportionate rates of stops, searches, and arrests of African Americans and excessive use of force against juveniles and people with mental health disabilities. 164 pages that you can read if you so choose to read it at www.justice.gov. And it is disheartening. I'm not even going to get into the specifics of what I read in just a few pieces of this report Mm. Mm. because it made me sick to my stomach. Um, Some of the ways that African-Americans, particularly African-American women, are talked about, um, are described um, words I would never use, words I wouldn't want my enemy to use, uh, want to use about my enemy, um, or the worst person in our society. Um, a, a consistent string of of language and tone and and illegal activity that went on, and it is disheartening and discouraging to read this. But it also should give us um, some in encouragement that this is coming to light and not being hidden not being brushed under the carpet, not being put under the couch, so to speak. But it is definitely, it is a reminder, an uncomfortable reminder that we are not past this tenuous relationship with police, but that we must enter into it and we must respect our authorities, but at the same time, hold them accountable wherever we can. And it it deserves saying that in in the Ferguson case, there were two police reports, and and I wrote yes, about please this. Please make that clear. Please make that clear. <laughs> it, it, well, it was the Department of Justice, right? So it's a federal body that ostensibly should have less bias and less baggage about this particular case than local law enforcement. And so the Department of Justice did their own official autopsy of Mike Brown. And it deserves stating that according to the forensic evidence, it was very unlikely. Um, in fact, he probably didn't have his hands up. And so folks will remember the the, the chant and the, and the hashtag, hands up, don't shoot. Uh, well, that's been largely debunked in terms of a narrative. Um, And it does show that there was an altercation within the vehicle. Uh, Mike Brown was in the vehicle. His hand got, was, was shot. Um, uh, It shows that he was moving toward Darren Wilson when, when the fatal shots happened. So that's there. And, and there's, there, there's no point in, in disavowing um, that report. But what I want to say right on the heels of that is many people only pay attention to that first report, the autopsy, and they don't pay attention to the second report about the Ferguson Police Department, which is very similar to the Baltimore report, which shows a pattern of police misconduct and policies that unfairly, unjustly, and disproportionately target African Americans, particularly low-income ones, which the, 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 the result of which is these horrendous relationships between law enforcement and the communities they're supposed to be protecting and serving. And so I just think that's important context um, as we look at these incidents. And also we talk about the generation of revenue, right? So this yes. generates revenue for the city to uh, have these petty offenses that gain fines, um, consistent court dates within the system, these stops, um, these, these minor offenses that lead to someone's name circulating throughout the system. 
and then the system itself fining and, and in essence, taxing them mm-hmm. so that the system can gain more money. And I think we should talk about that. And that's something important to remember because these are human beings who are having their rights violated, not just because they did something wrong, quote unquote, but having minor offenses to for the empowering of <laughs> and the filling of the coffers, so to speak, of certain people who are officials within that city structure. Man. So the systemic element cannot be, again, we always talk about the personal versus the systemic. The systemic element cannot be missed here. I mean, we could do almost a whole podcast on each of these reports because when you, like you said, when you get into the details, it's gruesome. So so in the case of um, Ferguson, you, you actually have one of the city officials emailing the, the the police chief and saying, hey, we need more revenue. We're not going to be able to make budget numbers if y'all don't come through on citations, which then gets translated to officers on the street as you need to stop more people and give more tickets, but it's not spread out evenly among the population. It's targeted in African-American neighborhoods, which then leads to another cycle because if for some reason you miss your court date, they'll put out an a warrant. They'll put out a warrant for you. Now, folks, that means you can be arrested for missing your court date for something as minor as jaywalking, literally. Right. And then, um, then you're in the system. And this is what Michelle Alexander talks about in her book, The New Jim Crow, is that even once you're out of the actual prison cell, you're still in this system. Uh, that labels you as a felon or a criminal, and then thereby excludes you, in many cases, pretty much for life from most of the uh, privileges of a citizen, but it was all part of a system that was rigged for revenue in the first place. Right, exactly. And and, and if people wanting are wanting a real life example of this, and I think some people would say, well, you know, it's just minor offenses, just pay the fine. <laughs> Number one, people can't pay the fine. But then if you want a real life example of, of the tension that can exist with, with this, take a look at Philando Castillo, who was shot and killed by police, and he had been previously pulled over 46 times. Unreal. 46 times. And they actually interviewed someone who had represented Philando Castillo as a public defender on, on a podcast I was listening to, and they, they documented why this is a problem. They documented why being in the system and not being able to pay a fine and then you're having to do with a suspended license and then you have to pay to get your your license back or you have to pay mm-hmm. the fine and mm-hmm. the, it, it's just it's a cycle it's cyclical yeah. and, it and so we're talking about these citations they lead to or have the potential to lead to escalation another situation walter scott right mm. the walter scott situation which again led to um, the killing of, of an unarmed black man. So I just want us to remember that and I want us to, to keep that front of mind. And, and so why would that be important, Jamar? Is that a gospel issue? Is it a gospel <laughs> issue for us? I'm serious. And I think a lot of people would ask that I when know, you guys man. are talking about the system, but you're not talking about the gospel because we can't change hearts if we don't. Well, well why is this a gospel issue? And what does the Bible say about this? I mean, absolutely, it's a Bible issue because here's here's a case of unjust systems. You know, the Bible talks oftentimes about about um, you know using using unjust scales or rulers uh, right. not treating their subjects fairly. I think I think. In a very real sense, you can make a very clear application from those passages to what's happening here, where those in power and the decision makers are deliberately fleecing 
the people who are under their care. Um, and you can look at it just purely from a financial standpoint without bringing race into it necessarily, although I think that's important. But but if that's troublesome to you, you could still just look at this financially and say, this is unfair. This is unjust. You are you are vic- you are you are exploiting um, the poor. You are exploiting the people who don't have power. And and if that's not a gospel issue, I don't know what is. But then you add race into the mix, and then and then you talk about the image of God. And are we treating each other as equals? And are we dignifying one another in the way that we treat um, treat people who have less power or who are under our authority? And that's a big gospel issue. I mean, what you 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 are work you are a pastor, man. How how would you how would you parse that? Yeah, so I think I think when we look at the the minor prophets, and this is a very important thing. So a lot of people, um, major and minor prophets, what we talk about is we talk about the gospel, quote unquote. And I think that is holistic, right? I believe that includes creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so and so when we're talking about this, what we see the tone in Isaiah, the tone in Jeremiah, um, not just the imperatives, but also the indicatives as well. What does God place weight on? Right. In Proverbs, where he says unjust scales, I hate them. I hate unjust weights. Right. If you if you oppress the poor, then then that is something I hate. If you um, are, are oppressing those who are under you, that's something that I hate. Like God does not cosign that. God does not allow us to get off the hook easily for that. And so as Christians, we must say, what has God placed emphasis on? And if God has placed emphasis on it, then that is something we should place emphasis on. So every single person's rights, we're talking about um, Jeremiah 22, where it talks about, you know, stop killing the innocent. <laughs> Don't kill innocent people. Like, it's very simple. Like, do not kill innocent people. One of the things Brueggemann talks about is, or actually, uh, this is Christopher J. Wright. He talks about in the book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, is mm-hmm. he says that that oppression causes poverty in many cases, that there, there are what we see throughout the scriptures are examples of people being oppressed and then that leading to poverty, not the other way, which leads to the, the societal and social ills that we continuously see. And so I think we must draw causality here because when we talk about the oppression that leads to poverty, then we talk about crime, then we talk about mm-hmm. disenfranchisement, then we talk about lack of education, then we talk about lack of health care, then we talk about a dehumanizing, a denying of rights. So we could go deeper into that, but I just want to remind us to read our Bibles holistically, read the entire script, because what Jesus is saying um, in the New Testament is echoed by God in the Old Testament as well. Amen, man. And and you know what? This is it's it was very troubling to me. I was awake at, at four in the morning praying about these reports on the police department. Uh, and and I add this because if if you're not seeing this in scripture, and I don't know how how you can't really, uh listen to your brothers and sisters who are who are most impacted by this because Reading both of these reports, you know, I, I reread some of the the executive summary of the Ferguson report, and then uh, some of the the report on on the Boston PD. And I'm sitting here as a black male, thinking about it's dangerous to step out of my door. Yeah, it is. Um, 
and oftentimes from the people who are meant to protect you. And 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 in the same breath, I I always say this is not. And and even these reports say we respect the profession. We respect the fact that these men and women are putting their lives on the line every day, and we do. Um, but what happens when there's a lack of oversight and accountability is because we believe in total depravity and we, because we believe in the fall. Um, without that oversight and accountability, what tends to happen is that uh, the lowest common denominator uh, reigns as ter- in terms of policies and practices. And so even, even um, you know, they, they reported about how the minuscule number of cases of um, complaints or police brutality were actually brought to anything, where where consequences were actually enacted. And that's a systemic issue that doesn't necessarily point to one particular cop or cops, but what that means is you're part of a system that doesn't allow itself to, to, to get corrected to the extent that it needs to. Uh, is what I think these reports are showing. But what what happens is, in real time, this is life and death. I mean, this Baltimore report comes on the heels of uh, the officers involved in Freddie Gray's death. He was arrested. He was handcuffed. He was put into a a police van. He ends up with his neck broken. The um, medical uh, person who examined him right afterwards said his neck felt like a bag of rocks and exclaimed, what did you, what did you guys do? And he ends up dying. Um, so this stuff has lethal consequences when carried out to its, to the very end. And that's for me, the urgency behind it. Like this is not a little report like, Oh, that's interesting factoid. No, (laughs) this needs to change. People are dying. Well, let's shift gears Jamar, because something else happened as well. Um, there was a <laughs> little, little something, little you know, something. nothing big, nothing big. Um, we're going to preface this conversation by just letting you guys know, um, that this, the rest of this podcast is going to be devoted to this, but it's devoted in love. Um, I want you to hear our hearts and, um, not just our passion. And so we'll make, we'll make probably a couple more disclaimers, yeah. <laughs> um, because there's things that a lot of things that can be misunderstood, but um, an article came out. Okay, so this was the first article that I saw on uh, Monday. And so I'm subscribed to uh, the Gospel Coalition on Facebook and Twitter, like their pages. And um, they're friends of ours. And if not for the Gospel Coalition uh, in 2013, I don't know if I would have ever met you, Jamar, uh, at their <laughs> national conference. Um, so definitely friends and brothers uh, in Christ. I, I don't know many of them personally who work there, but I know that you do. And I definitely consider them to be uh, friends from afar, definitely online. And the title of the article, I must admit, though, caught me way off guard. Mm. And um, it just sat um, wrong with me. I think it hit me the wrong way. And the title of the article was, When God Sends Your White Daughter a Black Husband. Now, subsequently, at the time of this recording, this article has been shared 83,000 times just on Facebook alone. So this is a viral article. And there has been a lot of intensity and a lot of opinion about this article. But I just want to get your thoughts and then discuss the article honestly um, and and talking about the dignity of the writer and then maybe the decision to post and things of that nature. Yeah, and I'll I'll preface this by saying this is a lot closer in terms of relationships than most of the things that we talk about. So um, 
you know, I, I know a lot of the staff and editors at the Gospel Coalition, they're friends, and they are huge supporters of RAN. Um, some of the first to come on board back in 2011, 2012, when we were just getting going, and are still uh, incredible supporters of us. Uh, I, so I know them personally. Um, I also know this the, the church family, where the author comes from. Um, I've been to the church before. I've preached at the church before, and really they're doing incredible things uh, uh, in terms of racial justice and diversity. And I'm not just saying that. Like I could, I could tell you specific stories and examples uh, that for a historic Southern Presbyterian church that has been mostly white for the the duration of its existence it is aggressively pursuing these issues that we're passionate about as as um gospel issues so well, i know all that yeah thing. yeah so so all that's going into it and um and yeah so i just want to you know Anytime a reporter reports on a story that that you know they they may have some ties to, they want to put a disclaimer in there and then proceed on with the reporting, which is what we're going to try to do. Is not you know unnecessarily soft pedal anything because we might have relationships or know these folks, uh, but at the same time, you know I think it, it's just important to to put out to lay out all our cards. So I'll start with you though, man. How did when you read that title? What was your first? What were your first impressions? I'll say this, man. I think, and um, just want to shout out the the writer of the article, uh, Gay Clark. And um, I'll say this: I believe that the intentions of the article were good, and I believe that there was a lot of heart put into the article, and it's uh, definitely a very personal situation. I'll say that just off the bat, the headline itself is problematic for me. And it deeply troubled me. And the reason why it troubled me is because it made Glenn, the subject of the article, the black man, the black husband, uh, seem to be a, a inanimate object. So it kind of presented him unintentionally, I believe, as maybe a trial um, or as maybe something that um, was completely unexpected or something that fell outside of the expectation line. And so for me personally, I know that sometimes headlines can be seen in a certain way. And so headlines can be misinterpreted. So I definitely am not saying that this was the intent at all. But what I will say is that it hit me that way. It hit me with a bit of discomfort. Um, and, and I think another reason why it hit me with a bit of discomfort is the framing. And we can get into this, but I think it is very difficult for people who are writing um, from a white majority perspective, even in contextualizing this for a white majority audience or maybe uh, mothers, white mothers who are encountering this, whether it's interracial marriage or interracial dating or things of that nature, it's very difficult for them to to get off of centering themselves. And you you kind of talked a little bit about this, Jamar, but it is very difficult for me as a black man to see the white centric perspective. In some ways it can diminish maybe the opinions that I would have personally or the perspective that I would have simply because it's the centering of that perspective, which would say, um, uh, this is about us. And, and I think sometimes I want to say, well, it's, it's about, it's bigger than us. We're, we're a body. And if we're truly going to advance and progress in this conversation, I think we have to reject that type of framing and the framing that would center it around, well, well these were my expectations, and this is what um, I wanted for, for my daughter and for my family. And I think a lot of people acquiesce to that narrative. And I would say, well, I appreciate that thought, but there are other 
people involved here. There's a, there's another side to that. And so the framing, those are just two things I'll say at the at the outset, the framing of the, the headline and then the, the overall framing of the article bothered me. And then I got into the actual text of the article. But but what about you, Jamar? I'm, I'm curious here what you would... T- yeah, so the, the, the title sort of rubbed me the wrong way as well. Um, and I had the same impression. It, as a black male, it's kind of objectified me, it otherized me, it dehumanized me. I felt sort of like this, not as a person, but as this kind of impersonal, slightly malevolent force that, you know, this family had to endure. And I'm like, uh, that ain't me. (laughs) I'm a person. Um, so, so that was that. But to me, you know, I was like, okay, well, maybe they're just trying to be provocative or whatnot. But then you get into the article and its content, and like you said, there's there's issues with framing, and in particular, I think it is what you're talking about the centering of the white experience and perspective. And again, we're not impugning um, Gay Clark, the author's motives here. I think. Right. Not As we read it, if we're honest, we, we get what she's trying to say and where she's coming from. I think we can see that. But the way it came off, right? So so there, there are particular – all right, so let me – I'll talk about the, the centering, and then we can get into some of the specifics of the, the content of the article. Um, yes. But what I mean by centering is when we are in homogenous environments – uh, whether racially or in terms of gender or economics, whatever it might be, it becomes extremely difficult to see the world from someone else's perspective. And then the mm-hmm. the way that comes out is even when you're talking about diversity, you're talking about it as if you are in the center or the hero of the story. And so as as what happens with centering in terms of whiteness and race is that whiteness is normalized and it's pervasive. And the sense is, and this affects our churches too, the sense is that this is ours, whether this is the church or the theology or the country. And to an extent, if you're different from us, because it's ours, we're letting you in to what's ours and how nice of us to do that. Um, and so I think some people came away with that impression from the article that this author was saying, you know, it is it is just so um, commendable of me to have accepted this black man and the problem that it is to be black, quote unquote, into my world. I don't think that's what she meant at all. But when you when, right. when you write in a certain way uh, that feels like you're centering whiteness, that's the impression that you get. So let let me let me interject here with this idea before we get into maybe some other specifics within the article. That that when we speak about this, as far as critique, there are two different levels of critique, right? So Jamar and I are very, and Jamar even more than me, uh, we're very familiar with the idea that when we say something publicly. We are speaking not just for ourselves, but for an entity, um, for a church, um, for an organization. And so what we say in particular can get attached to bigger forces than just us. So with great power comes great responsibility. Um, Too much is given, much is required, right? So 
when we're talking about the, the gracious critique here, we do want to extend grace, but we want to make sure that we're communicating that in the confines of a small group, in the confines of a dinner table, we're not jumping down someone's throat about this situation. Um, we're not um, giving them a 10-point castigation of, about why they're wrong and why they're representing white supremacy. That is not the case. That's not what we want to do in a one-on-one -on -one setting or a small group setting. However, when we're talking about the broader representation of Christianity, for better or for worse, this will be used to impugn Christians. This will be used to accuse the gospel that we preach. And so the reason why we approach this in this way, in a critical way, is not to deny Gay Clark grace because we give her grace and we pray for her. But at the same time, we want to make sure that it is clear in some way, shape, or form to, to other people who are watching and also to our fellow white uh, brothers and sisters that there is a perspective to adjust here. Not that we don't give grace, but we critique with the idea with the perspective that more people than just a small group are reading this, but that there are thousands and unfortunately millions of people who are reading this and coming to conclusions. So we give this critique in love, um, not demonizing, not burying, not crucifying, but simply saying, I hope we will consider this as we move forward so that we may learn and progress in the conversation. Because simply saying we give you grace without saying, hey, there's a perspective to correct here is not really giving grace. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, and as is typical in cases like these, there are two equal but opposite responses. One is uh, to completely jump all over this article and the author and be extremely harsh and ungracious, which, which we did see, honestly, on social media. The other extreme is like you were saying, Tyler, not saying anything at all and, and just saying, oh, well, I, you know, A for effort, let's move on. Uh, I think either of those would be an error. And I think there's a third way that would be more fruitful and productive, which is speaking the truth in love. I mean, this is a very basic biblical principle. It gets complicated by the fact that it's a public platform and the medium is is a blog post uh, reconciliation in, in in whatever issue you're talking about. It's incarnational, it's embodied, and it's relational. Um, it does have to touch on the systemic and the institutional. But what I'm saying is the it's really about discipling people into a greater wisdom and awareness about these things, and that's hard to do online. Uh, right. If not right. impossible, right. Um, it's so impossible. Yeah. yeah, not intended to be done via social media. Exactly, exactly. So I, you know, that's that's the frame I'm coming from here. That being said, you know, there were specific parts of the um, post that were troublesome. So right off the bat, she says this white 53 year old mother hadn't counted on God sending quote unquote an African American with dreads named Glenn. <laughs> and yeah. that was just like, wow. Uh, you know, we talked about the sort of objectifying and otherizing and dehumanizing. This is an African American. And then to compound matters, he's got dreads. Oh, no. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, like, already I'm feeling as a black man, like, okay, there's 
there's something malignant about me that has to be fixed or right. excised. So, you or, know, or something that doesn't fit within the scope of expectations. So it, it, it almost seemed at certain points, like, you know, being black was another species, right? You know, like it was another entity within itself to say, well, I didn't expect him to send me that, you know? And I know that wasn't, again, that wasn't the intent, but it makes me feel incredibly otherized and, it does not make me feel dignified as a black man. You know, she goes She goes on to say, here, here was another part. It was under point number one about remember your theology. She said, Glenn moved from being a black man to a beloved son when I saw his true identity as an image bearer of God, a brother in Christ. Um, do you want to tackle that, Tyler? <laughs> uh, okay, so, <laughs> so yeah. So I, I would say that um, w- when we're talking about moving from something to something, what it sounds as though is you graduate and transcend race. Mm-hmm. So I, he transcended the fact that he was black and moved into being a son as though he wasn't already uh, an image bearer of, of Christ, as though he wasn't already an image bearer of Christ as soon as he walked up, regardless of any familial connection, right? So we want people to see us as human beings and and not to move past our blackness, but to embrace the blackness that God has created us with uniquely so that um, we are seen in true dignity, not in the dignity of, um, hey, he's just a he's a brother in Christ now that I get to know him. But, you know, he was he was dignified before um, right. he was dignified in his blackness, like not in something else, but in his skin and with a beating heart. He, he is mm-hmm. still dignified. And, and again, you get where, you know, in a charitable reading, you get where she's coming from, where he's gone from this sort of two dimensional other kind of thing or being to an actual person who shares the dignity of it. You you get that, but the way it's phrased and worded, it makes it seem like he becomes okay to the extent that you look past the color of his skin Um, and, and, and that you become colorblind, which is, which is a well-intended, but erroneous concept because you don't believe in evolution. You know, don't believe in, in progressive enlightenment. Like we believe that sin still um, infects the way we view people. It does. It does. And and we also believe that ethnicity is created by God and is celebrated um, and is redeemed. Right. So in heaven, we're not all going to be white people, <laughs> and we're not all going to be black people. We're actually going to retain our ethnicity, and it will be completely right. perfected and redeemed in terms of culture in heaven. And so. Inter- Which she talks about in point seven as well. She talks about heaven's demographics. Right, right. You know, so she sees that, but I just want to like like that part, you know, it's not black people don't become okay when you stop thinking them thinking of them as black people. Black people are okay right. as black people. And I think as this black, is absolutely. Yeah. This is Galatians too, right? Like you don't have to become a Jew ethnically or culturally to be a authentic Christian. Um you don't have to become anything culturally or ethnically to be a first class child of God. Um, right. And 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 when we when we make these requirements that you have to dress a certain way, like our music, like our theologians, you know, like our whatever, you're adding to the gospel, which is indeed negating the gospel. So and and I think let me ask you this, Jamar, because I think it's important to say this. Have you been? I know you're married now, but have you before been the dreaded Glenn? Have you been? Have you? 
has that been you before? I mean, has this been me before? Yeah, okay, um, I, all right. I've, <laughs> I've interracially dated, so it's been me before. Has it been you? Before? It has been, and um, and it's heartbreaking, man. Like, like, like for real. Um, I I dated a girl once, and she did not want me to have dinner with her parents because she was afraid of how they'd react. Uh, our, our relationship ended shortly thereafter, after some different wow. conversations. But like that was that was heartbreaking because here's someone that you care about and you're affectionate towards, um, and even she is having reservations because of what you look like and where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, I think that's another part of this article. This is extremely personal to a lot of people, both black and white, who are in or have been in interracial relationships. I mean, when you saw that article, what relationships did you think about? Yeah, um, I I have been in that same, uh, very similar situation. Um, I will say that the parents of the particular young lady who I was dating at the time in college um, did come around. And um, I was at a place where I didn't really understand uh, maybe some of the language that was being used by others outside of them um, to describe uh, the relationship. However, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, just some of the fears and concerns that were kind of talked about in uh, parts of the article and objections even. But um, over time, they were very gracious. But I-, I will say that it is an uncomfortable feeling. And when you see the maybe the first point of alarm, the first point of concern, um, you have to ask yourself, well, well, where did that come from? And, and what, what about me communicated concern? Uh, what about me communicates hesitation? And what about me communicates a sense that where my body or my very presence and existence might be considered to be something to get over? Um, would you do that if my name was Joe? Would you do that if, you know, it's just the questions that I asked. And, and another part of the article that I think was, was interesting is kind of the idea of this being perceived as a trial, right? This being perceived as something to rejoice in. And I know for a lot of people, that was a very difficult part of the article to read. And I, again, understand where she is coming from completely. But I think for some people, it seemed like, well, this is what we have. So, you know, rejoice in this. And instead of saying, you know, you say that to someone who who kind of feels that they have been given a hard lot in life or given difficulty. And that kind of extended to the, the interracial children and the, the idea of what the seed will look like in the future. And um, I, I don't know. That just made me feel the article itself with good intentions just made me feel uncomfortable. Just in general, I'm just listing things that made me squirm. And the reason is I, I just, I want my dignity. You know, I believe that that's <laughs> what the like Lord that. has created me in. Man. You know, I, I, I want, I want dignity and I want my dignity for for my younger brother who's 19 and who, who is, <laughs> you know, probably soon going to be in a relationship himself and, and maybe may, who knows, have these conversations I want his dignity to be seen. He is a, he's a man and he is an image bearer of God. The second he steps foot um, at, at a, at a, a family's door, the second he takes someone out, he is, he's a man. He has human dignity. So. Yeah. Without qualification, um, without saying Absolutely. that you got to change, particularly your skin color. 
Um, so, so Jamar, let's talk about the reaction. Did you feel like the reaction was uncharitable? Do you feel like the reaction was <laughs> um, was was overextending? Well, do you let, feel like how was it? What do you think about it? Let, let me let me bring up one more point from the article. Um, okay, go ahead. He's like, let me get this off. Let me get this because I, <laughs> I think it's crucial, man. This Absolutely. is point number four. Remember to be patient with family members. And she says, calling Uncle Fred a bigot because he doesn't want your daughter in an interracial marriage marriage dehumanizes him and doesn't help your daughter either. Okay. All right. So listen, in the most, again, the most charitable reading we can give that, it's sort of like patiently bear with people who don't get it yet. Um, it, it doesn't yes, do- And I truly believe that's what she meant. Yes, absolutely. At the same time, it it is extremely- troublesome to me to read because black people are patient all the time every day with racism um like we we have to put up with the comments coming from prominent leaders we have to put up with reports from police departments about racist emails about uh, uh, policing for revenue in African-American communities. We have to put up with the angst and the anxiety of being in an interracial relationship and what the family might think. In so many ways, just living life and maneuvering in everyday ways, we're putting up and being patient with racism so that to read, you know, be patient with Uncle Fred... Again, I know what she meant, but at the same time, we got to confront folks, even if they're in our yeah. family and even if we yeah. respect them. And I think this is in particular for white folks, if you have people in your circles who have these kind of racial biases, those are folks that you know usually I wouldn't have access to and I certainly wouldn't have the same kind of voice uh, you know that that you would, and so right. it is be an imperative. Ally. Be an ally. <laughs> yes, it, it, and it is imperative that that white folks talk to other white folks lovingly, but truthfully, even if it means hurting feelings, right? Because right. it's going to cut. And I think whenever you talk about a gospel truth, you know the gospel confronts us in our sin, and that ain't going to feel good. There's no way to do that. And because racism is such a, a a dangerous sin, it can lead to so many ills. Um, we've got to take this on head on. Yeah, and so for me, at the first reading, it that particular part hurt me, and the reason it hurt me is because it made me feel like Glenn, and I keep using his name to remember his humanity. Yeah, but it made me feel like Glenn was otherized. But, but racist family members or biased family members have been humanized. There it is. Like it was a weird juxtaposition, yep. and so it was like, it was like, well, I got to get over this, but remember to bear with that. And I'm like, wait, how does this work? <laughs> you know, where where did where did these scales get flipped? I thought it was the other way around. You know, um, and so again, this is all the reading that we are very familiar with, and I think for many people, they're they're reading and saying the article was fine, and I would say. Talk to more more people about the article. Um, talk to more more black men who have been in that situation. And I have a number of, of of black male friends who are brothers in Christ who have who are in interracial marriages. And there will be a lot that listen. There are a lot in the Pastor Mike group. So it's very interesting to hear their perspectives about this. 
and how that made them feel. So I think that juxtaposition of of otherizing and then then humanizing, I, I felt like the opposite things. Um, it, it sometimes it is necessary. Sometimes confrontation is a requirement. So you talked about um, the responses, and I think in many ways this is probably the trickiest part of the whole situation. Um, let me say this as in general. I think, particularly as African Americans and allies, that we need to modulate our outrage. Hmm. He said modulate outrage. Okay. Modulate okay. our outrage in the sense of not turning it off and not muting it, but it doesn't have to be at volume 10 for every incident. You know? Um, Absolutely. We're Bible people, right? If we're Christians. Which means be. <laughs> I hope so, and 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 then and then I also hope that because we're Bible people, that context matters, right? So so we want to know what book this passage is in, uh, what are the circumstances, the historical circumstances around it. We want to know Old Testament, New Testament, original languages. All that context matters to get at the accurate meaning of something. Well, I think context matters in this case too. Um, who gay is as an author matters and where she is in her journey. TGC is a platform and what we know about those brothers and sisters, who they are, what they're trying to do. And yeah, they've got issues, but we also know this isn't like Westboro Baptist Church or something, you know? Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, I think that context matters. And in that context, um, and I think you also got to talk about who's responding, right? A lot of non-Christians right. responded to this. Exactly. So I think I think one of the things that maybe made me feel a little uncomfortable now is people saying, "Well, well, this is the fault. Christians shouldn't have responded so ungraciously." And I say, "Well, hang on now. Who 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 are you talking about?" Because there's a lot of people outside of Orthodoxy who have piled on for this article, but I see a lot of Christians who say, "Hey, we just saying this is problematic." And so what qualifies as lack of grace? What qualifies as lack of patience? And so I would say that there has to be some distinction drawn between the Christians and the non-Christians who have just co-opted this as another example to spread hatred about Christianity and the God we serve. So I think that's a big difference. But at the same time, I will agree that we must modulate outrage. I will also say that I think for, for a lot of people, outrage is a moving target. So when we're talking about outrage, sometimes that sounds like the preservation of feelings rather than a, um, a gracious challenge, right? So, so it, it seems like for some people, they would say, you guys are going too far. And I would say, well, what's too far? Like, what, what is acceptable critique? And what is the acceptable avenue of critique? And I think a lot of people are upset with the internet mob itself and then became upset with everybody who said anything. And I'm like, I don't really know how we move forward if that's the case. If we can't say, man, this is, we just want to tweak this a little bit, or this is how it made us feel. Well, you guys, should, you guys shouldn't assume. And we said, well, we didn't assume. We're just telling you how this made us feel, right? Like, I think for some of us, myself in particular, I kind of look back and I said, well, what did I say or what did anyone else say that would lead us to demonize a person if the internet mob does the internet mob thing, that's what the internet mob does. But I didn't see a lot of Christians doing that. 
Um, hey, that's just me though. I, I, you could you could see it differently, Jamar. <laughs> yeah, and, and this uh, this I think is an interesting case where maybe we we do have slightly different uh, perceptions of it. Um, the I think the bottom line is there there are no easy or standard answers for this. There's a whole lot of nuance, and I think you hit it on the head. The the fear. And, and oftentimes the danger is that in modulating our outrage, especially if we're toning it down, it can be perceived as acceptance. It can be perceived as, in the case of, you know, topics about race, um, as trying to sort of coddle white people and their feelings and not wanting them to feel bad, that kind of a thing. So you miss, you, you risk misperception. Um, based on your response. And so I think that's what a lot of people fear. And if that's out there, I think it's important to say, and I I tweeted this out, something to the effect of, um, you know, outrage can't be a litmus test for wokeness, Um, which is to say that... Which we would agree. I hope so, because I think it's becoming, even among Christians and black Christians, like... You're only really down if you get mad about the same things I get mad about and to the degree that I get mad about them. And I think we got to watch that because personally, and this is just Jamar talking and you may feel different, I think it was uh, a bit overwrought and whether that's, you know, it's hard, whether that was anyone in particular and I'm talking particularly about Christians here, whether it was any specific person who said something um, that wasn't gracious or whether it was the accumulation of people saying things or both, it was, I mean, my heart is heavy for uh, Miss Clark right now because of what she's had to go through. Um, And I don't, like, as soon as I say that, people are going to interpret that as, well, you know, you're, you're, you're protecting her feelings. You're not looking at it from the perspective of the minority or whatever. You can think that if you want. We just spent an hour <laughs> breaking down the article and what was troublesome. Uh, but I think in this case, in every case, you got to look at it um, on its own merits too. Uh, you know, there was a bit of, it, it felt to me like a bit of an internet mob mentality. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, personally, I think I think it became the article itself was the the point of contention. And I think the article itself is in many people's minds and mine included representative of a mindset that is uncomfortable, that makes us feel as though we are dehumanized within the church. So, again, without going into intent, because I don't think anybody wanted to bury. um, Well, I'll say this. I didn't want to bury her at all in any way, shape or form. And I said that multiple times publicly. But what I will say is what's what what's what is acceptable? What can we say? And 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 what I'm hearing is, well, you want to be heard. I'm like, well, what do we have to do? How do we have to come to you to be heard? And and are you are you pursuing reconciliation to the point where we can say anything to you that would offend you or anything to you that would make it seem like, um, hey, man, maybe this wasn't the best way to go. Is that acceptable? Or, hey, I think this is good, but 
Like, is there, is there, do we have a, a price of admission of praise and compliments before we can get into our critiques? You know, and I, and I feel that I feel like we have to gingerly walk on eggshells to say anything because people are, and, and this is, I'll say this, I'm very uncomfortable with the backlash to the backlash because people are saying, <laughs> man, everybody been vitriolic. I'm like, who? I see a lot of people outside the Orthodox faith who have been vitriolic. I don't see a lot of my friends being vitriolic. I just see them saying, hey, like, you know, maybe maybe some people have stepped a little bit too intensely on that line. Maybe they have. But I haven't seen a whole bunch of people in the family just going in. <laughs> what I've seen is them saying, hey, why did why do we do this? Why do we allow this to get out? You know what I'm saying? So I, I've seen a lot of people saying... Man, this is why this is a problem to us. This is why this is concerning to us. But I feel like we're walking on eggshells that we have to backpedal. And I'll tell you this. If we were out to get her, we would not have applauded when she came out with the tweet recently where she said, hey, I've asked them to take this down. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to want to cause any problems. Please pray for me. She's just been a model citizen throughout all of this. And so when we saw that, we weren't, we weren't trying to go after her. Um, and I say we, I'm just saying me. Um, but I, I don't know what's acceptable. If I'm being very frank and honest and open with you, I don't know what's acceptable. And it kind of makes me say, do you really want to have this conversation? Because we never promised that this conversation was going to be easy. <laughs> we promised this conversation, you're going to trip a little bit. We're going to trip a little bit. But we want to keep going. We don't want to just smack each other around and say, y'all ain't got no grace. Well... Uh, you know, I heard that, that to me has been that to me has been problematic because people have said you guys didn't have no grace with her. What do you mean? We just said we we just, you know, anyway, right. I'm, I, I'm a, it's, it's a podcast. So I'm a- <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it, man. I hear what you're saying. And you don't want to have the sense as a minority, particularly that you're walking on eggshells. Um, and that you have to give all these disclaimers, as we've done time and time again in this podcast. Um, yeah, absolutely. For a reason. Uh, for, for a reason, right. To me, though, here's what I thought, was even from Christians, it came off, the tone sounded similar to how we might respond to the, the you know, report on Baltimore PD, and how we might respond to somebody who said, oh, it's not that bad. And what I mean by that is not that people were using curse words or calling mm-hmm. the author, you know, any sort of names or anything like that, but it was just this sort of direct didactic statement about the wrongness of the article without any mm-hmm. sort of context of, hey, we get where they're coming from, but here's what we found problematic. I think we need to modulate that because of the context. I don't think we always need to take that approach. I think there are definitely instances um, where we can just call call a spade a spade and say, this is bunk. And by the way, modulating outrage doesn't mean not telling the truth, because uh, I think we're no. doing that on this podcast. We're telling the truth, and yet I hope we're doing it in a way that says, um, not only is this a sister in Christ, but we see the journey she's on. And, and we want to encourage her on that journey. And so that time for like real direct whatever, I think is always, you know, a possibility. But as we said at the beginning, that's much more done in the context of, of a real relationship 
Um, you know, so somebody wanted who knew her uh, wanted to sit down with her after this article and say, hey, look, let me just be real honest with you. This is what I thought about the article. I think that's very different than on Twitter or Facebook doing that among Christians. Well, I would agree. I would agree. And and I even said, like, this is best handled as a discipleship opportunity, as a place for for growth and love to be extended. Absolutely. Where do we get to the place, though, where it says this is a representation, a mass article? Here, here's, here's my perspective. I'll give you my perspective. So we had a forum at my church that I put together with six different pastors from across the city, um, multi-ethnic, uh, interdenominational, and it was a very good, healthy forum about racial reconciliation and harmony. Now, the day of that particular forum, the local Black Lives Matter activist organization um, tweeted, or they actually posted on Facebook, they said, hey, we support you in this. Thank you for putting this together. We look forward to being there. Dope. Huge. They've never been to my church. Wow. So it's huge, right? So when we came in, we came in, and um, and they were there, and so they participated. They listened. They had some clear objections to certain things that some people said, and they had some some enthusiastic agreements to what other people had said. And they were excited to be a part of the forum. And they said, thank you for having the forum. It was difficult for them, but they said, thank you for having the forum nonetheless. So there was another event that they had the next day. I went to that event, talked with them a little bit more. Good. Trying to build bridges, trying to create connections. Um, and just so anybody would say that they don't talk about black on black crime, this was a forum about black violence, violence in the black community with the police chief, et cetera. So here's, here's my thing. I'm trying to evangelize and give gospel and give grace to them. How do they view this? Like, to me, they're at stake. Like, the people who are part of the family of God, I want to treat them well. You know, I want to do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. But how do the activists view this article? And, and have, have I unintentionally or have we unintentionally given ammunition for them to say, well, this is what you believe, man. I see you like this. This is what you believe. And so when I hear that, I'm thinking of those faces. I'm thinking of people saying, man, this is why the church don't listen to us. Or this is why we're not here no more. Now, again, is part of that ungracious? Absolutely. It is. But sometimes I fear that we don't recognize the gravity of the representation. And yes, it is going to be unfair many times. But these are people who, man, I want them to be eligible recipients of the grace of God. I want them to experience the love of Christ. I want them to come in. Where am I going to send them to church? If they get saved, who can disciple them? I, these are things I'm considering. And then when I when I read this and then when I see, man, y'all just piling on. I'm like, no, much is at stake here. Like there's a lot at stake because how we are viewed can affect whether or not someone will ever step in our doors again. So that's just my perspective. And so when people right. say that, I'm like, well, yeah, again, don't center just just one thing here. Th there's a bigger and broader representation that must be considered. I hope I hope that communicates just part of my heart. Well, yeah, I get what you're saying um, and understand it. And I say this jokingly, but only half jokingly. Point them to Rand. Um, Absolutely. I think I think as a site, because we we are steeped in these issues, and we have so many uh, minority writers and whatnot, we're we're in some senses well equipped to tackle these from a Christian perspective. That I would feel comfortable with an outsider looking at um, to know that we're not just 
you know, in these Christian circles, crazy bigots uh, racially. So, so there, there's something to be said for that, you know, that, that there, there are outlets dedicated to these kinds of, of conversations. But at the same time, you know, you're, what happens when it does happen? Because we live in a fallen world. We know that the blog posts that come out aren't always going to be titled appropriately or edited uh, to the extent that we want. So what happens when it does happen? And I would be just as concerned about outsiders looking on as we correct and rebuke one another and the way in which we do that as a witness to the gospel as well. And so, you know, if, 100%, if, 100%. if we're talking to one another without any sort of difference between how a non-Christian might do it, I mean, I think that communicates something about our sanctification and what people believe, we believe, about our Savior as well. So I would want somebody to look in and see, oh man, they're, they're pointing out the same things I would point out, but they're doing it in a way that I wouldn't do. They're doing it in a way that's much more like patient and bearing with in the sense of, you know, not just making declarations bluntly about how you were wrong, but at least kind of saying, we, we understand where you're coming from, sister. Uh, right. Let's meet. <laughs> let's not even have this conversation sure. online, whatever it might be. Or even another sure. blog Absolutely. response, right? Like there's lots of ways to handle it that can be sensitive to uh, a, a world of, of non-Christians who are watching. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm here, I'm here for that. 100%. 100%. Now, what would you say to the people? I know this has gone long. But what would you say to the people who would say... Well, this is why we don't talk publicly about this. What would you say wow. to those people? Our white <laughs> brothers and sisters. Man, we're saying, man, man, we see we see your response, or we see the response to um Gay's article, and this is why we don't talk. Okay, so I wrote a blog post about this on RAN a while ago about encouraging our white brothers and sisters. And I do want to do that. And I, I probably need to forward that on to, to Gay Clark and whatnot. But at the same time, and you said this before, nobody promised it would be easy. And I would remind folks that as Black people and their allies have waded into these conversations, the consequences have been a lot more serious than a comment on a blog post or a tweet. Yeah. The, com the, the, the consequences have been jail, uh, beatings, fire hoses, mm -hmm. dogs, death. Um, so it's never safe to confront a culture with its sins. Um, and it's never safe in our climate to talk about race. And so some of that is sort of suffering for the gospel as you speak truth into darkness. But I think this is more the case, and I think this is your question more directly is, okay, as a white person, if I say something about race and I mess up, I'm just going to get just totally this onslaught of negative. Maybe. I can't guarantee that won't happen. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can say that this is the right fight and that you're going to learn from it if you keep going. But to retreat from it would be only to perpetuate uh, the issues that have gotten us where we are. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah, I think when I hear it, it hurts my heart um, because I sympathize with the idea of, you know, walking on eggshells and not knowing. Obviously, as I just communicated, you know, what do I say? Um, but but I will say, man, that I hope people would say, hey, you are worth it. 
as my brother in Christ, as my sister in Christ, my family, you're worth it. I'll walk through um, a public crucifixion, so to speak, online for you because that's how bad I want reconciliation. You know, isn't that what Christ did? He went to the cross. He didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything. Christ didn't do anything wrong. He was innocent. He went to the cross for us. That's how bad he wanted reconciliation. Mm. I hope that's the case, mm. man. I hope that's how bad we want it to where we say, that's my brother. That's my sister. I walk through hell for them because I, that's how bad I want to be reconciled, man. I hope people have that mentality. Um, and, and I pray that I have that mentality and that I'm willing to do that. So that's what we spent too much time here. We spent too much time. We already know. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for uh, tuning in. You can follow us online on Twitter uh, at underscore pass Mike and then at Rand Network. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on the iTunes um, podcasting app and on iTunes itself. Also, the Satchel app as well. We want you to download that and subscribe to Pass the Mic. Uh, feel free to give us feedback. Uh, give us feedback on the main randnetwork.org website, or you can also give us feedback on Twitter at Burns23 and then at Jamar Tisby as well. Um, just let us know how you're feeling, man. This is just the one of many conversations that we have here. If this is your first time, I hope this doesn't run you off. Um, I hope you're pressed in to, to enter into more of these conversations. So thank you, Jamar, for your wisdom and just for um, contending for the faith and grace and reconciliation. And um, I hear you and I'm learning a lot, man. Word. Likewise. It's all in the family. And uh, let's keep making these moves. And if you want to read more or learn more, visit the website, rannetwork.org, R-A-A-Network.org, or listen to past episodes of Pass the Mic on Twitter at underscore Pass the Mic. Also subscribe to Satchel. You can make a donation directly to Pass the Mic. We are not a big operation, folks. We would love your support. <laughs> yeah, we are not. <laughs> we are two people and Bo, who's uh, in a class by himself. And some laptops. And some laptops. Some laptops. That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, appreciate it, guys. We'll see you uh, next time on the next Pass, Pass the, the Mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.